Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's take our copies of God's Word now in our hands and open again to the 11th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. We're in Luke um, for several years, likely. We'll take some breaks here and there, but for the time being, we're in chapter 11. The title of today's message is The Sign of Jonah. Those of you who are longtime members know that uh, most summer months, we choose one of the minor prophets of the Old Testament to study. They're called minor prophets not because their message is any less important than the major prophets or any other book of the Bible for that matter, but because they are simply shorter than most of the other prophets. Several years ago, one of the minor prophets we studied was Jonah. And in that little book, uh, we see referenced here in Luke chapter 11 by none other than the Lord Jesus. It's probably the most famous of the minor prophets because uh, those of us who grew up going to church and Sunday school were introduced to it in the nursery department. And we learned to call it the story of Jonah and the whale. And uh, that's technically not correct because the Bible does not specify that it was a whale that swallowed Jonah, uh, but that God had created a great fish. We, we do know that uh, he was there for three days and three nights according to the scripture. And that is very, very significant to our text today. So let's read it. Luke 11, 29 through 32. As the crowds were increasing, he, that's Jesus, began to say, this generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them because she came with, from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now, Jesus was moved, had moved his ministry south at this point from Galilee into a region known as Judea, the southern part of present-day Israel. And there he was performing many of the same types and kinds of miracles that he performed in Galilee. That is, he was casting out demons, he was healing the sick, he was preaching and teaching with authority. People were amazed at his power in Judea, just as they had been in Galilee. The crowds continued to swell wherever Jesus traveled. But before him, as we saw last week, there were the Pharisees who did not believe on him and in fact tried to discourage the people from believing on him. Jesus called them blind leaders of the blind. As we'll see in the next few weeks, he reserved his harshest criticisms and rebuke for these religious leaders. They were spreading a rumor that Jesus was performing these miracles not in the power of God the Father, but in the power of Satan. There were many there in the crowd, though, that were not so blasphemous as to say things like that, but they were equally lost, and they declared that they could not believe until they had more proof. That is, they needed another sign, another miracle. But the problem, as we have seen in the study of Luke, was not the lack of evidence. Jesus was incredibly generous with these miracle signs. Almost every day he was going out and performing them in public. 
The problem was their fundamental lack of belief, their stubborn willingness to believe no matter how much proof they received. So Jesus here in our text today addresses those people, not the overtly blasphemous, but those who claimed they would believe if they had more proof. Those, in other words, who demanded one more sign. Now signs, miracles, are not sinful in and of themselves, of course. There were many signs that God gave concerning Himself in both Old and New Testament. Uh, an act of God's grace every time. He's not obligated Himself to give us any proof. The Bible says He sits in the heavens. He does whatsoever He pleases. We don't have God on a string. We can't pull a string and say, give us a show. But He has graciously in His sovereignty done so many times, these signs. In fact, there's a whole category of theology known as natural revelation. The root word of natural, of course, is nature. That's taken from the book of Romans. Paul says, by what has been made, that is in nature, we see God's divine power on display, His creativity, in other words. Another way of referring to natural revelation is general revelation. That is, it's available generally to the entire world. Those who have their senses about them, those who can taste, see, uh, hear, touch, they can discern through their senses that there is a Creator. Genesis 1.14 says, Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let there be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. We can look up at the stars at night, the moon, the sun, and know that uh, God's at work in the world. In fact, sometimes He uses some of those celestial bodies to reveal specific things about Himself. Here at Christmas time, we know that uh, he used a star in the east to lead those magi to Bethlehem. He gave the sign of the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes. The point is God gives signs. Signs are not bad. The problem was the unbelieving heart. Uh, if you need more proof, let's look back to the Old Testament. God gave signs of Himself through the prophets. Hebrews 1.1, in the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. You go back and read the Old Testament, God would raise up godly men, and they sometimes would do some pretty amazing things, say some outstanding and astounding things, which were signs from God to the people to reveal His will and His plan. Probably one of the most famous of these signs was when God sent fire from heaven, when Elijah prayed that He would, to consume those animals uh, that the prophets of Baal could not get their God to consume. And Elijah says, if God be God, serve Him. But if Baal be God, serve Him. And, and so Elijah was one of these prophets that God sent signs through to the people. There were some individuals, though, that God gave very specific signs to. I'm thinking of Gideon, one of the judges. And in Judges chapter 6, 36 through 40, remember Gideon was minding his own business, working there on his farm. And an angel of the Lord came to him and told him that he was to lead the armies of Israel against their enemies. And Gideon couldn't imagine that God would use someone like him. And so Gideon said to God, if you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken, behold, I will put a fleece of wool on the fleshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only and it is dry on the ground, then I will know that you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken. And it was so. And he arose early the next morning and squeezed the, the fleece. He drained the dew from the fleece, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not let your anger burn against me that I may speak once more, 
Please let me take a test once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry on the fleece and let there be dew on the ground. God did so that night for it was dry only on the fleece and dew was on the ground. Now here's Gideon. He wasn't sure this was really God telling him to lead the armies of Israel. And so he put God to the test. He says, God, if this is really you, I'm going to put this fleece, this uh, garment made out of sheep's wool here on the floor, outside. And tomorrow morning, if it has dew on it, but the ground is dry, I'll know that was a miracle. It's a sign from you to, to move forward. Well, God graciously, though he didn't have to, did that. He squeezed a, a bunch of water, a bowl full of water out of this fleece, but the ground was dry. So he said, ah, I know it's you, Lord, I think. But just to be sure, let me test you one more time. Tonight, if there's dew on the ground, but the fleece is dry, then I'll know for sure it was you. And God graciously granted both of those requests, and you know the rest of the story. Gideon led a great victory of the armies of the Lord. Now, don't infer from that that that's how God reveals His will most often. Those are notable exceptions to the normal way that God reveals His will, which is through the Bible, the Word of God. Yet I know people in this present day, maybe you've done it, probably I have too, who what we call put out the fleece. Now Lord, if you want me to, to date this girl, um, let her blink twice in the next five seconds. I knew some boys in seminary, that's how they discerned who God wanted to marry, something like that. Don't do that. We live in a world today where God has, has revealed uh, his, not, not who you'll marry, but the kind of person you should marry is, is revealed in the Word of, of the Lord. But God is gracious. He, he doesn't strike us dead when we show such lack of faith. But what Jesus is talking about here is a willful, stubborn unwillingness to believe no matter how much evidence is there. Now, now God used signs even with the apostles. You know their faith sometimes sort of wavered. And so after uh, Judas was a traitor to the Lord Jesus, that left them one apostle short of 12. And so they cast lots, which was a, a sort of way of discerning God's will in those days. We would call it superstition today. But the lot fell on a man named Matthias. But you'll notice that was before the day of Pentecost. That was before the Holy Spirit came and indwelt believers. And after that time where they chose Matthias through lots, there's no indication in the Scripture that God's will was revealed in such signs. Instead, the Holy Spirit, the Scripture says, is given to believers to lead them unto all truth. And of course today we have God's Word. We have the Bible. What an advantage that is for all of us. So, so the point is this. God has given signs in the past. He's going to give signs in the future according to the book of Revelation when it's nearing the end time. Perhaps He's already showing us those signs. He, he gave signs through the prophets. He gave signs to individual believers. Gave signs through the apostles. But here is an example of an entire generation of people who kept demanding a sign even though many signs had already been given. Look at verse 29, as the crowds were increasing, remember everywhere Jesus went, He would perform miracles, more people would come out. He began to say, that is, say as a regular thing He said, this generation is a wicked generation, it seeks for a sign. That, that word there means miracle proof. We want to see some miracles to prove that you're who you say you are. 
And apparently this callousness of heart was not isolated to just a few in the crowd. And Jesus says it's characteristic of their entire generation. And in this case, the word generation means a series of persons coming from the same stock. And really he's talking about their family, their ancestors. He's saying you are behaving in the same way that your ancestors before you. Now remember these were primarily, the crowd that is, very religious Jews that he was addressing. Many of them prided themselves of their genetic pedigree, but Jesus was not praising them that they were like their parents and grandparents. Rather, he was rebuking them. He calls them a wicked generation. We see a similar thing when Jesus looks out over the city and says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those that are sent to you. How many times I would have gathered you as our mother hen does your brood, but you would not. They demanded yet another sign. And even when they received signs, their ancestors in the past through the prophets, they didn't like the signs they were sent. The prophets would come and say, God's about to judge you. And they would put their hands to their ears and say, no, don't say that. Prophesy to us smooth things, they would say. That is, tickle our ears. Tell us what we want to hear. We see an example of that in 1 Kings 13. There was a wicked king named Jeroboam. And under Jeroboam, the people started worshiping and false gods and desecrating holy things. And God raised up a holy man that went to Jeroboam and said that God is going to send another person named Josiah to lead over the people. And on these very altars, these false priests are going to be burned. And he said, here's going to be the sign that this altar will be broken. Instead of Jeroboam repenting and saying, no, how can we be saved? He called out to the guards and said, seize him. That is, shut that prophet up. We don't want to hear what he has to say. Well, Jesus is saying to the people of his generation, you're just like those you came from. You don't want to hear the truth. You just want some signs. And so there's the demand for the signs. And then secondly, there's the rebuke of these people. This generation, verse 29, is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Remember, Jesus is speaking to religious Jews. They knew their Old Testament. They knew the story of Jonah. Now, you may not be so familiar. Maybe all you remember is the whale, the fish. So let me remind you of the story of Jonah. Jonah was an Israelite. And the enemies of the Israelite were a group of people called the Assyrians, which were exceedingly wicked people and cruel and known for their bloodthirstiness. The word Assyrian was a byword to Hebrew people for the wicked. And God said to Jonah, I want you to go down to Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrians. And I want you to tell them that I'm going to destroy them because of their wickedness. But Jonah wouldn't go. In fact, he went the opposite direction. He got a ticket on the ship headed to the city of Tarshish. But while he was on that ship, God sent a storm, a tempest. Jonah finally confessed to those on that vessel that the cause of the storm was he. And they threw him overboard after he begged them to. And the storm stopped. And God had, Scripture says, prepared a great fish that swallowed Jonah. And he was in the belly of that fish for three days and three nights. 
at the end of which he was uh, vomited out upon the shore and he ultimately did as God commanded and he went to Nineveh and there he preached that God was going to destroy that city. And of course, you know that story as well, likely that the king repented in sackcloth and ashes and issued a decree that everyone was to repent of their sins. And, and they did. This was a great city. Perhaps hundreds of thousands of people were there. And God saw their repentance. He knew their heart and He forgave them. And He withheld His wrath, which they rightfully deserved. And you know what it means when God withholds wrath that we deserve? It's called mercy, isn't it? That's a good thing. But Jonah didn't think it was so good. Jonah liked mercy for himself, but not for anyone else. And he began to pout and complain and said, I knew it. The reason I didn't want to come is because I knew if they repented, you'd be merciful and forgive them. And now you're not going to destroy them. He was mad about it. And God rebuked him because of his lack of compassion for the lost. And may God rebuke us today if we have any of the same thoughts. Because our God is compassionate and merciful to the long-suffering, even the pagans like the Ninevites. Jesus' point is that those people, the Ninevites, had one sign and one sign only, and it was the fact that Jonah was alive after being three days in the belly of a whale. That was a miracle by any standard. It's a miracle to be swallowed by a fish and survive. The sign of Jonah is the resurrection. Unless you think that's a stretch, it's not. In fact, Jesus interpreted his own teaching in Matthew 12, 38. Listen to this. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and an adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now, friends, I would love to see Jesus cast out demons. And I would love to taste of the loaves and fishes when he fed the 5,000. I would love to see him walk on water with my own eyes. But the greatest evidence that Jesus is God, who he claimed to be, is the empty tomb. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is the sign of Jonah. And yet, even with the empty tomb, the people of Jesus' generation and many billions today still will not believe. Jesus predicted that, didn't He? He says, even if the dead are raised, they will not believe. But now Jesus says something that would have been particularly galling to the Jews, to which He addressed. He holds up pagans as a positive example of faith. Now I said that would be galling because many of these Jewish people only viewed Gentiles, pagans, as kindling wood for the flames of hell. They thought that God had created those people for wrath. Certainly not them. They thought they were safe because they were God's chosen people. But those Gentiles, they deserved hell. And so what does Jesus say? Look at verses uh, 30 and 31, for just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them, while she 
because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now, have to know your Old Testament, these people did to understand these two references. First of all, he says, the men of Nineveh will stand up on the day of judgment and will condemn you who don't believe. And then he says, the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba will stand up on the day of judgment and condemn you. Well, we've already talked about the Ninevites, these pagan people who were given an opportunity to repent, and they did. And now the queen of the south, this is a story taken from 1 Kings chapter 10. You remember that after King David died, his son Solomon assumed the throne. And God came to him in a vision or a dream and told him that he would grant him whatever he wished. And what did he ask for? Wisdom. He could have asked for riches. He asked for wisdom. But because he asked for wisdom instead of riches, God gave him both. And he became not only the wisest man in the world, he became one of the wealthiest men in the world. And he built great cities and temples and homes and cities. And his fame began to slowly go out into the Hindu regions of the world. And the stories of Solomon's wisdom and wealth made their way to this person known simply as the Queen of Sheba, likely from Africa. And she put together an entourage and she had to see it with her own eyes. The stories were too fantastic. She was a skeptic. And she makes her way to Solomon's court and he invites her in. And the scripture says in 1 Kings 10 that she had all sorts of questions for him. She had put together a list of things she wanted to know. And Solomon, Solomon answered her questions with such precision and aplomb that at the end of her visit she was overwhelmed. And she says, when I came here I came as a skeptic, but I'm leaving as a believer and she said this, the half has not been told. That is, the stories about you were not exaggerated. In fact, they were conservative in their estimates of your wisdom and wealth. But here's the most important part about that story. It's not just that she left as a believer in Solomon. The scripture says she left blessing the Lord. Wouldn't it be great if everyone who spent a day with us would leave blessing the Lord? And so here's this lady, this pagan woman, ostensibly, the queen of the south. She came a skeptic. She left a believer. The Ninevites, pagan, bloodthirsty, treacherous, they repented and God granted them forgiveness. The point is that those people did not have the advantages of God Himself walking and talking with them. They did not have the advantage of Jesus performing miracles in front of them, yet they believed. And that is it will be more tolerable than the most wicked people on earth who have never heard the gospel than for those who hear it week after week, year after year, and yet reject it. Jesus said in another occasion that the people of Tyre and Sidon who were known for their debauchery and wickedness. It will be more tolerable for them than those from Judea. He said, if the miracles that I performed here had been performed there, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. You get the point. He holds up pagans, people they held in ill regard, as superior to them. And that galled them to no end. And so fourthly and, and finally, we have his, his declaration. That is, he puts a 
a summary line under everything he said about them and their failure to believe. And this is what he says. The queen of the south will rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Here's his summation. Solomon was the greatest man that ever lived. Someone greater than Solomon is in your presence. Queen of the South was great. Someone greater than that is here. We've been studying, as I've told you, the book of Hebrews on Wednesday evening here. The book of Hebrews is a difficult book. But the theme of Hebrews is found in every chapter. And that is this. Jesus is better. The superiority of Christ is the great overarching theme of Hebrews. In chapter 1, the author of Hebrews, whomever he may be, declares that Jesus is greater than the prophets. In chapter 2, he declares Jesus is greater than the angels. In chapter 3 that we just finished studying, he declares to the shock and amazement of the Hebrew people that Jesus was even better than Moses. Now some believe that Luke was the author of Hebrews. We don't know. But many of the same themes in the Gospel of Luke we find in Hebrews. And here we have that same theme of Jesus' superiority from the words of Christ himself. And he says, I'm greater than Solomon. I'm greater than Jonah. I'm greater than any emperor that has ever lived. That, friends, is not exaggeration and it's not arrogance. It's simple fact. Because you take the greatest person that has ever lived, the greatest people that have ever lived, the greatest minds, the wealthiest people, the most creative talents in the world, the greatest artists, and they all have one thing in common. They were created by Jesus. And the one who creates something is greater. This is what we saw in Hebrews he says, Moses was a builder of the house, or was the house, but Jesus is the builder of the house. Now, I hosted a, an architect in my office, the man who designed the three-story building across the hall here. And we were talking about how well the building has worked out, how functional it was. But I didn't pass by the brick edifice and pat the building and say, boy, you're a great building. I said, Bill, thank you for designing such a wonderful building. That's the point of Hebrews. All of us are just things that have been made. This world, the stars, the planet, all of nature is just evidence of the greatness of God. And Jesus says, I'm with you. I'm standing right here and you say there's not enough proof. He saw the callousness of their hearts and he declared that they would be judged accordingly. And I said it last week, I've said it many times, I'll say it again. I believe one of the most dangerous places in the world is in a Baptist church that teaches the Word of God. A place where you can come and hear the gospel truth Sunday after Sunday, Wednesday after Wednesday, week after week, year after year, decade after decade, and still die and go to hell in unbelief. And the Bible says, to whom much is given, much is required. In that book of Hebrews that I referenced earlier, there's a passage in Hebrews 2, chapter 3, that is a haunting verse as it relates to this warning. Last Friday night, 
I was invited to a, a Sunday school party. My wife and I attended, and we sat at a table of eight, six other people. And when people of my age and older than me get together, you young people won't understand this, especially at Christmas time. One of our favorite topics of conversation is a game called Who Was Poorest Growing Up? <laughs> and so we began to try to one-up each other, just who was the poorest, who got the least at Christmas. And uh, I was, Melissa and I, the youngest at our table, so we lost that game. <laughs> but we all agreed, having told about our poverty growing up, that the good old days were probably not as good as we remembered. And it was great to be alive today. Well, friends, that is true not only materially, but certainly true spiritually. We sometimes say, well, if I'd have lived in another time, I'd have had a greater faith. If I'd have seen Jesus perform those miracles, then I would have believed. Well, those people did, and they didn't believe. It's my belief that today is the greatest day to be alive. Here's why. The scripture says that having the full canon of scripture, we have a clearer understanding of God's eternal plan of redemption than even the prophets. Did you know that? Did you know you have a clearer understanding of the gospel than Isaiah did or Jeremiah because it's laid out clearly in the Bible? You have a clearer understanding of how this world's going to end than Moses did because you have the book of Revelation. In fact, the Bible says, you, you have something called grace that's been offered to you that the angels were not even offered. Angels long to look into and, and understand these things. On top of that, living where we do, we have freedom to worship here. We can gather without fear of being arrested. We have access to the Bible 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And, and so this is a warning to all of us. Listen, Hebrews 2, 3, and 4. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first being spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. So Jesus came, God in the flesh, that's what Christmas is all about, remember, the incarnation. God in the flesh, and he says, here's my plan, repent and believe. And even after Jesus sent to heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit, and through the apostles, he preached the same message of grace and repentance. And then he gave us the Bible, and we've been preaching that same message for 2,000 years, and he continues to send rain upon the just and the unjust. It's not that the natural general revelation ceased, but in addition to that, we have the special revelation today. And so the rhetorical question is asked by the writer of Hebrews, how shall we escape God's wrath if we ignore that mountain of evidence? Friends, the inference, the implication rather is we won't. And it can be rightly said of this generation, what was said of Jesus' generation, that the men of Tyre and Sidon would be more tolerable for them, for us, because we had a clearer revelation than anyone. But it's not just those things. Verse 4 says, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, and with different kinds of miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His will. How shall we escape if we neglect so great of salvation, we won't, and you won't. And so, dear friends, my plea with you today is having heard the gospel here perhaps hundreds of times, don't let your heart grow calloused. Don't become 
more insensitive to the things of God. If he is dealing with you today, listen. Despair of anything you're trusting in. If it's like the Jewish people who your fathers were, forget that. Won't work. If it's what you've done for God in his name, forget that. It won't work. Whatever you're clinging to that is not the person and work of Jesus, it will not work. And let me let you in on a little bit of secret. These people you see here around you with the perfect hair and the nice clothes and the nice perfume and cologne, do you know who these people are? These are sinners saved by grace. That's who we are. And if you think you can't be that, you're wrong. Because God saved wicked Ninevites when they repented and believed. God saved pagans who worshiped false gods when they repented and believed. And God has saved nice law-abiding citizens of North Texas when they repent and believe. And God will save you if you will repent and believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for the incarnation. We're reminded here at Christmas time that Jesus left the glories of heaven and took on human flesh, lived a perfect life so that he could die on the cross in the place of sinners like us. And Father, we know that in and of ourselves, we are no better than the Ninevites. We're no better than the people of Solomon's day, no better than the people of Jesus' day, no better than our friends and neighbors. We're separated from you by our lostness. We're rebels against the Holy God. And yet, Lord, for many of us, there came a day where you sent someone to tell us about Jesus. Maybe it's through a sermon, maybe just through a relationship with another believer. But in some way, we heard the gospel. And you granted to us by your spirit, faith and repentance. Lord, I pray you do it again today. You're still in the saving business. The Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Lord, I pray that even today in the stillness of this moment, that some soul would cry out to you for forgiveness of sins, knowing that you'll hear them, you'll forgive them, you'll save them, you'll give them a home in heaven. Thank you that you've done that for so many here. Do it again for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.